Okay, um, so I'm excited to have the chance to uh, uh, walk us through the book of Revelation. Might as well get your Bibles open to Revelation 1, because we're going to dive in and um, we're going to be in the text a lot. And my goal is that as we walk through this, that you will have a framework for understanding the book of Revelation. Now, how many of y'all did your devotional reading in the book of Revelation today? No one? No one did their devotional reading in the book of Revelation. How many of y'all routinely go check out what's going on in the book of Revelation to see if it matches up with what's going on in our world? Um... All right, well, I hope that after tonight, you go, hey, I am not scared of the book of Revelation because I've got a framework for being able to understand it, okay? So that's our goal tonight. Let's see how we do. So we've been doing uh, five points for each book that we've done, and uh, I didn't even try to limit the book of Revelation to five points, but I did get it into ten big points that are going to walk us through literally almost every chapter of the book of Revelation. So let me stop using my time, and uh, we'll uh, pray, and we'll get started. Okay? Lord, thanks for the chance to open your book. Thanks for the blessing that uh, it promises to us, that uh, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and uh, those who hear it, and most importantly, those who keep what's written in it will be blessed. And so I just pray this blessing on uh, all my friends sitting in this class. And so, Lord, uh, guard us from error. May we uh, rightly handle the word of truth, and may it uh, prepare us uh, to give us both uh, motivation to tell others about the fact that your son is coming back, and most importantly, may it give us hope. In the midst of uh, dark and uh, turbulent times, your son indeed is the hope of the world. So thanks for this time. Amen. All right, so five reasons that we spend our time looking at prophecy and books like uh, the book of Revelation. Um, although it doesn't take long to call the roll when you start looking at books like the book of Revelation. Um, it's interesting to look at the book of Daniel, because Daniel is probably the um, greatest book in terms of revelation of uh, the end times in the Old Testament, and we're going to take a uh, hard look at uh, some of the passages in Daniel, because you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you have a grasp on what's going on in the book of Rev- in. I'm sorry, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand what's going on in Daniel. Okay? All right, so let me give you five reasons why we study um, prophecy. And as I do that, I guess I ought to get the slides rolling here. Here we are on Revelation and wrap-up. I hope I save a little time for wrap-up. And before we go to that, there we go. Um, Let's talk about the five reasons to look at prophecy and Revelation. First, it proves the authority of Scripture. There is no greater proof of the inspiration and validity and authority of the Bible than fulfilled prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy reveals that God knows the future 
and that he can be trusted with the present. And then second, it reveals God's wisdom and power. Third, it reveals the purposes of God. You know, sometimes we're moved to think that the world is out of control. That sounds familiar for our country right now. And that God's asleep at the wheel. But nothing will assure us more uh, than knowing that God has a prophetic plan and that he knows how history is going to unfold. It also brings peace to believers in Christ. If God's in control of history, then we can have peace that his plan is good and that it ultimately will be accomplished. And uh, if you were at Summit this morning, guys, um, it's not always in our timing. In fact, it usually isn't. It's in his timing. But his plan will be accomplished. And then finally, the reason that we study uh, um, prophecy, the reason we study the book of Revelation, is to produce a holy life in his children. Almost without exception, listen to this, almost without exception, New Testament references to the coming of Christ are followed by an exhortation to godliness and holy living. So gang, if we do nothing else, then motivate ourselves to be ready for his return uh, in our study tonight. We will have had a great study. Okay, so let's jump to what Watermark has to say in uh, its doctrinal statement, which you can find on the website uh, about the end times. And let's just read that. We believe in the personal, imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the church. This event, commonly called the rapture, will be followed by great tribulation on earth and will culminate in the visible and bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth, commonly called the second coming, to rule the nations and establish his millennial kingdom. And then there's a bunch of scripture there that supports those concepts. And in that little statement, you have three key events of the end times drama. Okay? The rapture, which is the removal of the church from the earth. The tribulation, a seven-year period that we'll uh, take a look at uh, from the book of Daniel and uh, also in Revelation. And then finally, the place where we put our stake in the ground is on the second coming of Christ, bodily and visible. Okay? And so... Those are three big ideas uh, encompassed in that little uh, uh, one-paragraph statement. And those ideas will be kind of the main events of what we talk about in the end times drama. Okay? And so let's don't waste any time. Let's dive right in to uh, Daniel 9. Open your book, open your Bibles uh, to Daniel 9. We're going to start in verse 24. Okay? Um, Y'all may remember the story of Daniel. Daniel was a guy that uh, was captured in the Babylonian captivity. He was taken off to Babylon. And instead of saying, oh, woe is me, Uh, we've been exiled and life is over, Uh, he plunged in and became ultimately one of the leaders in the Babylonian empire. God gave him favor. 
And it's interesting when we look at the book of Daniel that Daniel is described as a man much loved by God. Okay? And we didn't talk about this when we studied the Gospel of John, but there are a number of references in the Gospel of John to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And scholars uh, uh, are pretty unanimous in their view that John was talking about himself uh, in that description. And so is it any surprise that the two men who received some of the major prophecy in Scripture are described as guys who are much loved by God? Okay? And were they special guys? Were they, you know... John was an ordinary fisherman who was plucked off of the shores of the Sea of Galilee uh, and who dropped his nets and left his dad and came and followed Jesus immediately. And Daniel was a gifted uh, youngster who was captured and taken in exile. And yet uh, God had chose these two guys to reveal um, so much important stuff about his plan for the end times. Okay, so everybody ought to be in Daniel 9 by now. And here's uh, our first uh, uh, timeline that we're going to look at. You've got this in your slides. Okay. Um, And what I've tried to do in this timeline is to give you, in a timeline, my best understanding uh, and estimate of how the Daniel vision of 70 weeks plays out in history. Okay. And so let's read this passage. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay? And so you're going, all right, 70 weeks, what does that mean? Well, scholars generally understand that it refers to weeks of years. Okay, so each week represents seven years. You know, one day equals a, uh, a year. And so 70 times 7 equals, for the math scholars in here, 490. Yeah, okay, so we're dealing with a period of 490 years. Okay? And, um, you know, you, you read this and you go, okay, so... Have these things happened? Has uh, everlasting righteousness been brought in? Well, if you read the newspaper this morning or if you looked around, I would say uh, the answer to that is a big no. Um, Has there been an end to sin? Well, if I'm any example, then the answer to that is absolutely no. Okay? So these things are future uh, events still to come. All right, so... Uh, Verse 24 sets the framework. We're dealing with 490 years. Okay? Know, therefore, this is verse 25, Daniel 9, 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? Well, you need to uh, do your math again here. 7 plus 62 equals 69. 
69 times 7 equals, that's a little harder, 483 years. Okay? So in 69 weeks, that would uh, cover a span of um, 483 years. Okay? And so when does it begin? It says, uh, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? So we can document when that happened. You can read uh, Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8, and uh, um, King Artaxerxes of the Babylonian Empire um, sends out a decree for uh, this to happen, or actually maybe in the uh, Persian Empire by then. Um, But scholars have dated that in approximately 445 or 444 B.C., Okay, so that begins the clock on Daniel's sixty-nine or Daniel seventy weeks running. Okay, you with me so far? Um, go look at uh, Nehemiah two five through eight um, uh, tonight or tomorrow, and um, see what it says. All right, and so then, um, let's keep reading. The 69 weeks will um, end with the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Okay? And you go, all right, so what's that? Well, as we keep reading, we'll get a little more clue to it, but let me just kind of um, give you a little peek ahead. I think that refers to the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem. You know? He indeed was the anointed one. He, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Okay, and so when was he declared to be the Messiah? In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You know, the Hosanna, the palm leaves that we celebrated on Palm Sunday. You know, the people crying out, blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalms. Okay, so he was proclaimed as the Messiah at that point. But that crowd was fickle, and it quickly turned on him. And uh, a few days later, what were they crying? Crucify him. Okay? All right, so that sets the, the kind of the um, boundaries of the 69 weeks. Okay, so from 444 B.C. to approximately A.D. 33, If you're interested in the precise calculation of these dates, there is a book out there for you. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's written by uh, Dr. Harold Honer, who was the chairman of the Greek department at uh, Dallas Seminary. And uh, uh, Dr. Honer is now home with the Lord, and he now knows whether he was right about what he wrote uh, in this little book. Uh, But it is a fascinating study of how he mathematically calculated these things down to the day. Okay, so if you're interested in that, look at the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. All right, so let's keep reading. After the 62 weeks, and so that means the seven weeks have come and gone, the 62 weeks have come and gone, a total of 69 weeks have come and gone. And now we get to, you know, confirm our suspicion that this was Jesus. An, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. What's that a reference to? 
No, not Herod. The anointed one being cut off. What? Oh, Jesus yeah, the cross. Okay? That's simply a reference to what was fulfilled in history with the cross. Okay? And shall have nothing. And then look at this. Um, I'm in verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, so when did that happen? Well, that actually happened in history. That happened in A.D. 70 when the Jews, I'm sorry, when the Romans under Titus uh, came and captured and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Okay? And so what does that also tell us? Well, it tells us that there's a gap. There's a gap between the end of the 69th week and what will be the beginning of the 70th week. Well, why do I say that there's a gap? Well, the destruction of the city doesn't come uh, within the first 69 weeks, and it doesn't come um, before the start of the 70th week. And so... Um, Scholars sometimes call this the great parenthesis in history, and I've indicated it on the table with um, the parentheses around what we call the church age, which is what we're in right now. Okay, We don't know how long this church age is, and it will last until Jesus comes back for his church. Okay, So 69 weeks are over. With the triumphal entry, Christ is cut off at the crucifixion. That's mentioned. Uh, We have this great parenthesis, and during the parenthesis, the city is destroyed um, by the Romans under Titus in A.D. 70. We know that happened in uh, history. Okay? And so, um, let's see. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And, you know, sometimes the kingdom of the Antichrist is referred to as the revived Roman Empire. Okay? And I think that's why uh, there's a reference to the people of the prince who is to come. Uh, I think that prince who is to come is a reference to the one who will be called the beast or the Antichrist. Um, and so the people, meaning the, the early incarnation of Uh, The Roman Empire destroys the city and the sanctuary. That actually happened in A.D. 70. It's in, it shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then look in verse 27. Here's where we deal with the last week, the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay? And so I have that indicated up here as... uh, um, you know, this this is not to scale. It's uh, probably the longest thing on the chart, uh, if you see. But it's a seven-year period. The 70th week is what uh, we will know as the tribulation. That's the place in Scripture where we get that the tribulation period is seven years long. Okay? Um, in the book of Revelation itself... Uh, we don't see any references to the tribulation period being seven years long. We get that from Daniel. Okay? All right, and so when does this 70th week start? And he, I think that's a reference uh, to the prince who is to come, shall make a strong covenant with many. Many, I think, is a uh, reference to uh, the nation of Israel for one week. And so the trigger event 
of the tribulation period will be a treaty between the one who is the Antichrist or the beast of Revelation 13 uh, and the nation of Israel. Okay? That's what will start uh, the seven-year period called the tribulation. And so he enters into this peace treaty, and everything's great, and Israel is allowed to resume sacrifices and offerings and whatnot, and uh, to, have, to rebuild the temple, and uh, everything's hunky-dory. And uh, then it says, for half of the week, and this is a reference to the latter half of the week, he shall put an end, again, the prince who is to come, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will stop the Jews from offering sacrifices and uh, offerings. Um, He will demand worldwide worship. Okay? This is sometimes referred to as the abomination of desolation because he apparently will erect some sort of image in the holy place of this tribulation temple that the Jews build. Okay? And we see this right here. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so, you know, there is a promise that, hey, it's not going to go so well for uh, this prince who is to come, who uh, makes a treaty and then puts an end to it and then um, um, sets up abominations in the holy place of the temple uh, because the decreed end is going to be poured out on his head. Okay, and so there's a great Old Testament passage, and who do we have that has validated this sort of understanding uh, of Daniel's prophecy? Well, we have the Lord himself. So now let's turn to Matthew 24, verse 15. Okay, and everybody remembers that Matthew describes Christ as the... King, yeah. And Matthew is organized around what? Five discourses. Yeah, five discourses. The last of which is called the Olivet Discourse. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago? Olivet Discourse because he was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his guys come to him and said, Hey, Lord, what are going to be the signs of you coming back? And so he tells them in the Olivet Discourse. And so look at uh, chapter 24, verse 15. And Jesus um, is talking with his guys in the Olivet Discourse. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, etc., etc., Okay, so this is, Jesus is referring to what Daniel was talking about in Daniel 9.27. He called it the abomination of desolations because, um, as we'll see in Revelation 13, the Antichrist is going to erect some sort of image of himself and demand that the entire world bow down and worship the Antichrist. Okay? All right, so as we look at our chart again... The 69 weeks begin with Artaxerxes' decree, and they end with the triumphal entry of Christ into the um, city of Jerusalem. 
He's cut off at the cross. We begin the great parenthesis in history with the church age. And during that time frame, the city is destroyed in AD 70. One of the ways that we know there's a gap between the finish of the 69 weeks and the start of the 70th week. Um, I threw in the rapture just for fun. Uh, It's not mentioned in Daniel's vision of 70 weeks, but it is likely something that will precede the start of the tribulation period if we're right in our um, pre-trib view of the rapture. That simply means that uh, Watermark believes that the church will be removed before the start of the tribulation period. Okay? Uh, But what we do know about in Scripture is that uh, the tribulation period itself begins, the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks begins with this peace treaty. Okay? And then uh, we have in the midpoint, you can see I've got it uh, right down here, the abomination of desolation is set up at the midpoint of the uh, tribulation period. And the tribulation period is punctuated at its end by the second coming. All right? Daniel's vision of 70 weeks. That's a lot. We could have done the whole hour and a half on that. And we've done it in, you know, about 15 minutes. Okay? So keep your chin straps buttoned because, uh, or your seat belts buckled, either one, uh, because... uh, um, It's going to get more fun. All right, so that's Daniel's vision of 70 weeks. And from that, we get the idea that the tribulation period that is to come um, will be seven years long. All right, you with me so far? All right, so now things get a little more fun. And so I've tried to put on this chart kind of an overview of the entire end times drama. Okay, and so if you look, you see on the left end, we've got the peace treaty with Israel, Daniel 9, 27. The rapture uh, likely will happen before that, we think. Uh, If I'm wrong, I'll give you your money back for this class, okay? Um, So, you know, uh, we'll talk about it in heaven. Um, But it likely will start, um, likely will be before the uh, peace treaty with Israel, if we're right about the pre-trib view of the rapture. Um, but those are things that we hold loosely, okay? Um, and then you can see that uh, we'll have uh, judgments going on with the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. We'll talk about those. You can see in the mid- middle here, I have used Oscar to be the abomination of desolation, okay? That's become more and more fitting, um, okay? So right there, some sort of graven image will be uh, erected here. And you can see this whole thing is the seven-year tribulation period begun by the peace treaty and ended by the second coming of Christ. Okay, there'll be a lot of things that'll go on at the midpoint of the uh, tribulation period or by the midpoint of the tribulation. I've got them highlighted right down here at the bottom, and we'll talk through each one of these. Okay, so now I'm just trying to give you kind of the big picture before we dive into the different uh, segments. Okay, so midpoint of the tribulation here and all. Judgment's going on. Uh, Armageddon campaign. You know, we've all heard about the Battle of Armageddon. But that's a misnomer. Don't think battle. That sounds like a single event. Think campaign. You know, it's going to take months 
for this to happen. You know, as the United States has gone to war in the Middle East, uh, think about uh, the buildup and how it's taken a period of time for all the armies to assemble. Well, that's going to happen. And when we talk about the Armageddon campaign, I'm going to outline it for you in eight stages. Okay? All right, so then we conclude with the uh, second coming. I've got a couple of things going on up here in heaven, the judgment seat. We'll talk about that. I'm not going to really talk about the marriage of the Lamb, but you can read a little bit about that in Revelation 19. And then um, this, I've got the thousand-year millennial kingdom compressed down into uh, what looks about uh, a couple of weeks Uh, But it's a thousand-year period that we'll talk about. It's punctuated by both Satan's final rebellion and the great white throne judgment. Okay? And we'll talk about all those things. And we'll do it in one hour and one minute. Okay? I hope. All right. So that's an overview. That's what we're going to cover as we walk through the book of Revelation. Okay? All right. Um... I'm going to hold off on questions unless you just think, I've got to ask this question or I won't be able to make it through the entire class period. Because if we start getting into questions, we'll never get back to what we're trying to cover. All right, I still want to do some maps. So you've got here, this is uh, within the area of uh, um, what's modern-day Turkey. You can see Ephesus down here um, at the bottom. Um, You can see the ruins of Ephesus today. Okay, and uh, you can see these are the letters, these are the cities, these are the churches, I should say, to whom the book of Revelation is addressed. It's addressed to seven churches. And um, I don't know whether this is a horseshoe or whether it's an arrow point, but you can see these uh, towns are actually within walking distance of each other. And so it's likely that the Apostle John visited every one of these churches to whom he's writing. Okay? He could have walked to each one of these in the course of uh, his ministry based in Ephesus. Okay? And remember that he is over here just off the coast of uh, Turkey, just uh, 10 miles or so from Ephesus out um, in the uh, uh, sea. Um, on the island of Patmos where he is in exile and where he actually writes the book of Revelation. Okay? So there's, just to give you a little picture, these are the churches in these locations where uh, John was addressing this letter, this book. All right, so as I promised, not going to be five points. We're going to deal with ten points here. And let's start with point number one being um, a blessing and a theme in Revelation 1. I've already talked about the blessing. Um, You're actually promised in uh, Revelation 1-3 a blessing for reading it out loud, but more importantly, not just reading it, but obeying um, what it says. Okay, that's in Revelation 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, when John wrote this, um, he thought the time was near. 
Okay, uh, the rapture is described as being imminent, which simply means that there is no prophetic event that has to be accomplished for the rapture to happen. For the second coming to happen, there are lots of events that have to occur. The tribulation period, the abomination of desolation, there are all sorts of things that have to occur. So we don't say that the second coming is imminent. We say that the rapture is imminent. And let me guarantee us, gang, that... um, Uh, If he thought it was near, we are 2,000-plus years closer than John was, okay? So it's way nearer for us. And then you see in verse 4 right there while we're there, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And uh, he'll actually specify who those are uh, over in uh, verse 11, okay? The other thing I want to highlight while we're right here is what uh, I would take as the theme of the book. And it's all about um, Christ's second coming. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This is uh, Revelation 1-7. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So, gang, when I say this is where we put our stake in the ground, it's aligning right with Scripture that says that he's coming back and every eye will see him. Okay? All right, so that's my first point. We've got a blessing and a theme. My second one is that chapter 1 is all about a vision that John has of the uh, resurrected Christ. Okay? And we can see that in Revelation 1, 13 through 16. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. Remember as we talked about... Uh, um, um, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man, over 80 times. Our image for our our key idea for the Gospel of Luke was um, that it depicts Christ as the Son of Man. And then there are seven things that are described there, okay? And these seven features... Uh, hair, eyes, feet, voice, right hand, mouth, face are um, the things that are most relevant and um, pertinent to the needs and circumstances of these seven churches. And so we're going to see in chapter 2, each one of those begins with a depiction of Christ. And six of the seven are lifted right out of this vision in Revelation 1. Okay? Are you with me? We'll see that in just a second. All right? And so you have uh, uh, Christ described in um, seven features. And then we have, uh, uh, towards the end of uh, chapter 1, a very important verse, the key verse for the book of uh, uh, Revelation. And that's Revelation one nineteen. Take a look at that. He says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. Okay? And what that does, not unlike the, uh, um, our key verse in the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, it gave us a little geographical outline for the book. Remember that? Well, here it also gives us an outline for the book. And so the things that John has seen is chapter 1. 
And the things that are are chapters 2 and 3. Those are the seven churches that John was ministering to. Okay, so those refer to Revelation 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 that we'll see are seven letters to these churches. Okay, and then finally, the after this stuff. Remember that little phrase, after this, when we get to chapter 4. The future things begin in chapter 4, and they run through uh, the end of the book. Okay? So we have the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. Okay? There is a working outline for the book of Revelation. Are you with me on that? The vision of Christ that's given here pictures Jesus as a judge. That's represented by the uh, golden sash that he's described as wearing. And it's primarily as a judge that Jesus appears in the book of Revelation. And he judges the seven churches. He evaluates them. In four, uh, Revelation 4 through 16, he's the judge of the whole earth. In Revelation 17 and 18, he's the judge of both religious and commercial Babylon. At the second coming, he's the judge of the world rulers at Armageddon. In Revelation 20, he's the judge of Satan. Also in Revelation 20, he's the judge of the earth as he reigns from the throne of David during the millennial kingdom. He's the judge of the rebellious earth at the end of the millennium uh, that we'll talk about in Revelation 20. And then finally, at the great white throne judgment, he's going to be the judge of the unsaved dead who will appear before him at the great white throne judgment. So remember that idea of Jesus as the judge. And that fits perfectly with the gospel of John, because remember in John 5, we didn't really talk about this, but you may have seen this on your own. In John 5, 22 and verse 27, uh, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's verse 22. In John 5, 27, he says, And he, the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So remember that idea, Jesus is the judge. And he's actually going to be our judge, too. We will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to talk about that. Okay? All right. So that's point two. Point three, the letters to the seven churches. That's Revelation 2 and 3. It starts off with uh, um, a letter to the church at Ephesus. You can compare and contrast these uh, seven churches, these letters to the seven churches, on the basis of five criteria. Okay? Okay? And I would encourage you to do this in your own study. You know, get a piece of paper and list the names of the seven churches down one side. And across the top, list these five ideas. Um, Each one has a depiction of Christ. Each one, um, almost each one, has a commendation. There's one church that doesn't get a commendation. See if you can figure out which one that is. All, hmm? Okay, um, it's not Philadelphia. Um, hmm? No, it's not Thyatira. 
Um, all right, well, if you must know, it's Laodicea. Okay, Laodicea um, does not receive a commendation. All right, all uh, the churches receive a rebuke except two. All right, you're not going to worm that out of me. You've got to figure that one out on your own. Okay, all the churches receive an exhortation. And then to each church is given a promise to those who conquer or those who overcome. Okay? And as good students of Scripture, you have to figure out what does it mean to be an overcomer? What does it mean to be a conqueror? Is that all believers or is it those believers who persevere faithfully to the end? Uh, scholars go both ways on that. You've got to make your own call on that. Okay? I know which way I come out. Okay? But um, who are the ones who overcome? Um, and so here I'm just trying to give you um, a brief overview of the churches here to help you remember what's going on with each one. Ephesus is described as the church who lost its first love, okay? It's interesting that Paul uses the word love more in the book of Ephesians than any other book except um, 1 Corinthians. And if you go look at the last verse of uh, the book of Ephesians, it's talking about this church having loved with a love that is incorruptible. But 30 years later... This church is described as having lost its first love. And you know, I can't help but uh, think about Watermark as I think about that. Okay? You know, Watermark is on a roll. It's growing. You know, good things are going on. You know, on a perfectly good Thursday night when there's a big Republican debate, we've got a room full of people who want to know more about his word. That is encouraging. But the question is, what is Watermark going to be doing in 30 years? Are we going to be like the church at Ephesus that had left its first love? I think that simply is a reference to it had stopped being a witness for Christ. And, you know, Watermark is a pretty good witness for the cause of Christ in the city of Dallas and Um, in this area and really around the world. But the question is, what are we going to be in 30 years? That's going to be y'all's problem, not my problem, okay? I'll be gone. And so I'll be able to, you know, be up there keeping an eye on you. I don't think I'll be that interested in what's going on here, though, okay? But that's the challenge that's before us. Where will we be in 30 years? Will we be like Ephesus? Or will we be like Philadelphia, continuing to persevere? Or like uh, Smyrna, continuing to persevere in the midst of suffering? Okay, so we start with airing Ephesus, suffering Smyrna's, the next church mentioned, uh, then permissive Pergamum, tolerating Thyatira, sleepy Sardis, uh, faithful Philadelphia, and lukewarm Laodicea. These are just little mnemonic devices that I've used to help me remember these churches. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, figure out something else that will help you remember what's going on with respect to each one of these seven churches. Okay? 
And so remember that the depictions of Christ found in the introductions to um, at least six of the seven messages in chapters 2 and 3 are drawn largely from the vision of Christ in Revelation 1. Okay? And it's really only the uh, message to Laodicea that doesn't have that uh, uh, a depiction taken from chapter 1. Okay? And as you're reading through, looking at these depictions of Christ, uh, try to figure out how does the depiction of Christ speak to the need of that particular church, because each one does. What Christ is described as has some particular relevance to what's going on, the challenge in that particular church. And one way to think of them is that you look at erring Ephesus that left its first love and lukewarm Laodicea, uh, that says, hey, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Um, those are the churches that are in the worst shape. So you've got bookends of the two worst churches. And then if you skip down to the second church and the sixth church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, you see those are the two churches that don't receive a rebuke. Oh, I wasn't going to tell you. That don't receive a rebuke, Okay. And so you've got the worst churches, then you have the best churches, and then the three in the middle are kind of, you know, some good, some bad. Okay? And so I hope that helps you uh, start to get a handle on what's going on with the seven churches. Okay? And so we have erring Ephesus and suffering Smyrna, permissive Pergamum, tolerating Thyatira, sleepy Sardis, faithful Philadelphia, lukewarm Laodicea. And if you think about the, the, you know, these are Jesus' words that John is writing down to these seven churches. And really, they're the last words that Jesus has spoken to his churches that are recorded in Scripture. Okay? And so what does he want for the church? I think looking at these letters can give us an idea of what he wants for the church today. He wants it to patiently endure in its love for Christ. He wants it to be found faithful in suffering, even unto death. He wants the church to be spiritually discerning, not distracted by false teaching or tolerant of evil in its midst. He wants it to be spiritually alive, to be awake, to be walking with Christ, led by the Spirit that gives life. He wants it to hold fast to biblical teaching. And he wants it to be useful and in constant fellowship with him. These letters have a great message for the church today. Okay, so that's chapters 2 and 3. All right, fourth point. Chapter 4 is about the one who sits on the throne, which I think is a reference to the Father. Revelation 5 is all about the Lamb, okay? And obviously, uh, um, we don't have trouble identifying who the Lamb is. And uh, chapter 5, well, let's, let's just go look at uh, chapter 4. Let's start there. We start out with um, a door open in heaven. Watch for those doors. 
Um, says, come up here, I'll show you what must take place after this. Um, and uh, look at how we begin uh, the first words of chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked. Remember the key verse? It says, um, the, the last thing was the things that will take place after this. Well, I think John gives us a little clue that, hey, here's the after this stuff. And so uh, um, he's in the spirit in verse 2, throne in heaven, and one seated on the throne. I think this is a reference to the Father. And you'll see as you keep um, their living creatures and uh, 24 elders worshiping, and you see that uh, then in chapter 5, verse 1, that in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And then here we, we start with uh, uh, some of the questions of the book of Revelation. This is the first of eight questions in the book of Revelation that appears in uh, verse 2 of chapter 5. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And then one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. What in the world is that? Well, it's not hard to figure, hey, you know, Jesus is uh, often referred to as the Lamb of God, sacrificed for us. Okay, so Lamb equaled Jesus. Okay, I got that. And then seven S's are used to describe the, the Lamb. First, he's standing. And we usually think of Jesus pictured sitting on throne next to the Father. But here I think it's important and this picture of Christ is important because it, as he's standing, what's that saying? I think it's saying that he still has work to do. And that's why he's pictured as standing. Okay? So there's the first S, uh, standing. The second one's uh, um, understandable. He's slain. Okay? This was the Passover lamb slain for us. And then he's described as having uh, uh, seven horns and seven eyes. And I use the word um, strong to describe the seven horns. The horn in the picture, uh, the horn in the Old Testament was a picture of strength. Okay? And so um, think strong. And then finally, the seven eyes, um, think scrutinizing. Again, I think a picture of... Uh, um, his judicial role. And then the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And what is that? Well, if you go look at uh, uh, Isaiah 11, uh, verses 1 and 2, you'll see a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is simply the seven spirits uh, are a picture of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so the lamb is worthy, and it, the lamb takes the scroll from the hand, right hand of him who sits on the throne. That's verse 7. 
And then we have worship going on. And then we move into chapter 6, where from chapter 6 through 16, uh, those are organized around our next point. Three series of seven judgments each. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Okay? Seals, trumpets, and bowls. They're spelled out in chapters 6 through 16. And as we uh, go there, we're going to look at uh, each one of those judgments uh, in 6 through 16. But let's keep in mind a couple of things. First, I think there's a pattern to what's going on in the book itself. Okay? And that pattern is grace before judgment. And that's the way our God rolls. He gives us grace opportunity after grace opportunity to respond to his mercy before he executes judgment. And you see this throughout the book of Revelation because you'll see a series of judgments unfold and then there's kind of a stop in a period of grace, as it were. You see this intervention or intervening period between um, the sixth seal and the seventh seal and between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Okay, so remember that pattern of grace then judgment. And you can see the things that are highlighted in yellow up on the screen. Okay, it didn't come out so well on your slides, but um, those are the grace things. Okay? And we see, uh, we'll see in chapter 7, the 144,000 witnesses sealed. Uh, they're described as being servants of God. And commentators are pretty unanimous in their uh, observation that these likely are evangelists that are sealed and protected from being harmed so that they can evangelize the world. Okay? Two witnesses, they also are testimony to uh, the power of God. You can read about them in chapter 11. We'll talk about them in a little bit. So you see this pattern of grace and judgment. And you also see a second pattern, and that is that it seems to be uh, an alternation between things going on in heaven and things going on in earth. And so as you read Revelation, you need to keep in mind, where are you? Are you in heaven, or are you... uh, in the midst of events that are happening on the earth. And uh, if you got my uh, book, we sent out an email. Hopefully you got the link where you can download my book. I went through and kind of uh, traced the alternation between heaven and earth. Okay? If you had any problems uh, with that link or whatnot or didn't get it, uh, come see me afterwards or see Sylvia, and uh, we'll make sure that you get that. You know, it's a study guide that I put together um, to help folks try to get a handle on what's going on in the book of Revelation. Okay, so 6 through 16 are all about three series of seven judgments each, the um, seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. And I think they happen in fairly chronological sequence. They're really two different ways of uh, looking at the judgment. Some scholars think, this is called the recapitulation view, that they're really just seven judgments and they're explained in different ways uh, three different times. I don't buy that. I think the judgments are sufficiently different in nature, although there is some similarity between some of them. I think that they are indeed three series of seven judgments each. Um, And with the 
unfolding of the or the opening of the seventh seal, we have the seven trumpets coming from that, and from the seventh trumpet come the seven bowls, and so it's kind of like a telescope opening out, and it's often referred to as the telescopic view. Okay. So they all have a format of four judgments that impact the earth plus three cosmic judgments. Okay, so bear that in mind as you're looking at them. Um, Here are just an outline of the judgments. Okay, it starts with the seals. And here's where uh, we get the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, have you all heard that phrase? Four horsemen of the apocalypse? It comes from Revelation 6, and we start with a white horse, and then a red horse, and then a black horse, and then a pale green horse, okay? Those are the four horses that are the first four seals, and you can see the listing um, of each one. You can see how uh, there are some similarities, and... um, The thing to really keep in mind is what I've written up here in the upper right corner, that the judgments are sequential, they're chronological, and they're intensifying. And why do I say that? Well, the sealed judgments impact a quarter of the Earth's population. You can see that right there in the fourth uh, seal. The trumpets, on the other hand, impact a third of the world. You can see that... uh, a. Uh, death comes to a third of mankind. And if you think about that, um, you know, if you do the math quickly in your head, start, say we had six billion people at that point. And if a quarter of the world is wiped out, that's um, uh, one and a half billion people killed. Can you imagine what the world would be like in the midst of that? And then if another third of the world is killed after that, That means that in the first two sets of judgments, half of the world's population has been killed. Yikes. And so then we have in the seven bowls, these impact the entire world. So a fourth, a third, the entire world. Uh, And you see that these judgments, I think, play out sequentially. They play out chronologically. And they intensify as they come out. Okay? So that's chapters 6 through 16. All right. In the midst of this going on, you have a little color commentary. One more thing about the judgments before I leave them. Um... It's interesting to compare and contrast the judgments, some of the judgments, with the judgments that um, were the ten plagues that impacted Egypt um, during the Exodus. Okay, and so it's interesting to go compare and contrast uh, the, uh, particularly the trumpet judgments, with the um, uh, plagues uh, that are written about in the book of Exodus. There's uh, uh, a number of similarities there. And one more thing I ought to do. Uh, When I teach through chapter 9, I love to say that chapter 9 reveals three great spiritual realities. And if you go look at uh, chapter 9, in the fifth seal, there's some, you know, crazy stuff going on. 
Um, it seems to be that um, there demons are on the loose. Let's just look at that right quick. Nine one fifth angel blew his trumpet, saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and here come uh, locusts that have powers like scorpions. Okay, and they're told not to um, harm uh, uh, the people who uh, have the seal of God on their foreheads. Only can only harm those who don't. And they'll be allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but not find it. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. And then look at the description of the locust. Wow. Okay. And then the sixth angel um, uh, unleashes something that's even crazier. Okay. And so what do we see from these? We see, one, that there is an unseen spiritual world uh, around us that people uh, during the tribulation are going to see. And then we also see that God is sovereign in his judgments. The judgment lasts the, the fifth trumpet for five months, not six months. Not five months in a day, but five months. And, interestingly, five months is the life cycle of a locust. Go figure. Okay? So there's an unseen spiritual world. God is sovereign even in his judgments. And uh, um, he's in control of what's happening. And then the third spiritual reality is just this hardness of man's sinful heart. Look at Revelation uh, 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These guys didn't get it, despite suffering the most horrible things that have happened in the history of the world. Man, you would think they would go, hey, we're playing for the wrong team here. We need to switch sides, okay? But they don't. And so that third reality is just the hardness of sinful hearts, even in the midst of terrible uh, things happening. Okay, in chapters 12 and 13, I want to pause and talk about seven great players in the end times drama. And I don't mean great in the sense that we want to grow up and be just like some of them, but they are important to the playing out of this end times drama. And so if you go look at uh, uh, chapter 12, we start with a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, uh, on her head a crown of stars. She's pregnant, crying out, birth pain. Um, and then here comes uh, uh, another sign, Great Red Dragon. You go, okay, D- Great Red Dragon. Um, that's one I can probably identify. Seven heads, ten horns, things happening. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that uh, when she uh, bore her child, he might devour it. Okay? Um, we can probably figure out who the dragon is. Okay? That's our adversary. 
The woman, I think, is a reference to Israel. She gives birth to a male child uh, uh, in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I think that's a reference to Christ. Okay? So he is the third player of the end times drama. Here they're listed, okay? And then in 12.7, we see the archangel Michael uh, in the midst of a, a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and his dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. Bingo. We were right about our... Uh, understanding of the dragon the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him that's an event that's likely to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation and institutes the greatest period of anti-semitism and of terror on the earth okay and so he is the uh fifth i'm sorry the fourth um great player in the end times drama and the next one's a little harder to identify, but I uh, refer to uh, the remnant in um, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay? And so... Even in the midst of this terrible tribulation, there are going to be those who take a stand for Christ. They're going to be persecuted. Many of them are going to be martyred. Um, but even that will be momentary light affliction compared with the eternal weight of glory that awaits them. Okay? And so the remnant is the fifth one. And then chapter 13 deals with the last two big players on the end times drama scene. And that is um, the first beast that comes from the sea. I think this is a reference to the Antichrist. And then the second beast who um, rises out of the earth uh, is the Antichrist false prophet. And so together the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan make up the counterfeit imitation trinity. You know, Satan is the great uh, counterfeiter. And so um, he wants to be like God. You know, if uh, um, Isaiah, um, what is it, Isaiah 7, I think, or, um, um, well, I need to look. Um, but uh, he says, I will be like the Most High. Somebody find where that is in Isaiah for me. Um, I will be like the Most High. And that's his goal. And for three and a half years in the last half of the tribulation, God is going to allow Satan to have reign on the earth through his guy, the Antichrist. Okay? Only for three and a half years. Okay? The last part of the tribulation will be the time of literal hell on earth. Okay, and so these two guys make up the sixth and seventh players of the end times drama. Thank you. Isaiah 14, 14, where it um, says that, you know, 
He wanted to be like the Most High. I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. Well, this is his time, but it's not going to last for long. Okay? And it's not going to be that God has lost control. He is going to be sovereign over even this terrible end times uh, drama. Okay? All right. Let's take a big breath and um, step back and look at what's going on in heaven during this time frame. If we're right about the rapture and the church has been removed, I think that while the tribulation's going on, that we will be participating in something that's called the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Most of you heard that term, judgment seat of Christ? It's something that's not taught in many churches, but uh, Wagner has been faithful to talk about it on a number of occasions, even recently. Okay? It's something that you can read about in several key passages. And so let's just go look at those right quick. Let's start with uh, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, let's start with 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Okay, we can only lay a foundation, verse 11, uh, in Christ. Anyone that builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, this is verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3.13, will become manifest for the day, I think that's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, uh, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Not literal fire, but fire is a picture of uh, evaluation or uh, judgment. Uh, Fire is used uh, to purify things. You know, a refiner uh, purifies silver by uh, putting it through fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, Christ in other words, um, that's our foundation. If that work survives, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. All right, so what the heck does that mean? All right, so that's one passage. We'll come back. Now let's go to uh, uh, Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, uh, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We'll all appear before the judgment seat of uh, Christ. And then finally, um, look at Second um, Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Okay, I don't think sin will be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. Why not? Jesus paid for our sins. Law of double jeopardy says that, hey, it's been paid for, it's not an issue. Okay, but what is an issue is what have we done with... um, the knowledge that we have. We've put our trust in Christ, and what have we done with it? So it's going to be our deeds that will be an issue. 
And the ones that uh, were done with the proper motivation, with the right heart, uh, will survive and will receive a reward for those. And those that uh, were done to glorify Bob and not to glorify Jesus, poof. I hope this class doesn't get burned up, okay? I hope I'm doing it with the right heart that says, I want to give glory to Christ uh, and not to make myself more famous, okay? So the bottom line is, is it's always about the heart, okay? You with me on that? That's going to be the test, all right? But there's hope for us, okay? And let's go back to 1 Corinthians 4. It's not about sin. It's about uh, our deeds and our work done. The question's going to be our motivation. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. But to whom much is given, much is expected. Okay? And then look at uh, um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Look how that um, closes. Don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then look at that last line. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now think about it. The thief on the cross didn't have a lot of time to um, do a bunch of things hanging on the cross. But what did Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And this verse uh, says that, hey, we're all going to receive some sort of accommodation or some sort of commendation, I should say. Okay? But that doesn't negate what we just read a few verses before in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians that, hey, if your, reward, if your things are burned up, you're going to suffer loss. Okay? And in trying to picture that, um, you know, think high school graduation. There were diligent students who studied hard and did the right thing and, um, you know, shined up uh, in extracurricular activities, and they received rewards at graduation. And then some of us were just happy to graduate. Okay? Um, but you might have had that little twinge of, you know, I could have done that if I'd studied harder, if I'd done this or done that. And that's an inadequate picture to describe the judgment seat of Christ. But, you know, just as 1 Corinthians 3 says that if your works are burned up, you're going to suffer loss, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says then each will receive a commendation. So that each of us have done some things that the Lord's going to reward us for. But my exhortation to each one of you, starting with me, is that, okay, so we know about this, so let's make the priority of our lives to honor Christ by doing things that bring him honor and glory, and then the judgment seat will take care of itself. Okay? So that's something that's likely going on in heaven while uh, hell on earth is happening. Okay? And I think that ultimately what we're going to have the privilege of doing 
you can read about in Revelation um, 4, uh, 10. It talks about casting our crowns before the throne uh, of God. And think about that, that, hey, the good things that we have done have been because we have been led by the Spirit and allowed to do things that bring honor to Christ. Okay? And we'll have a chance to give something back, but the picture is that we don't just give it back once, but that we perpetually have opportunities to lay our crowns at his throne, at the foot of his throne. That will be a fun thing. All right, somehow I've run out of time a little bit here. Um, But let's keep going. All right, what are we up to? We're up to point seven. I think we can make it. In chapters 17 and 18, we see the destruction, first in 17, of religious Babylon. I think that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. And that is... uh, um, God allows the Antichrist to destroy this religious system that he has used to help him uh, ride to power. And uh, he turns on, uh, chapter 17 says, he turns on the religious uh, uh, Babylon and he destroys it. I think that's part of clearing the decks at the midpoint of the tribulation so that he can demand worldwide worship. And then Babylon is spoken of as either a political or a commercial system in chapter 18. And I think that destruction happens as a part of the Armageddon campaign. Okay? So you can read about that in Revelation 18. And the idea there is that it happens in a single day, even a single hour. And so it's something that happens quickly. And I think it's part of um, the... Uh, Armageddon uh, campaign. And so let's move to the Armageddon campaign in point uh, eight, that in the second coming. We see the way paid for Armageddon in the sixth bowl judgment. Okay, you can read about that. And here are the eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. We first see the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist at the Jezreel Valley. That's typically what we think of as uh, Armageddon around the Jezreel Valley. Uh, The destruction of political and commercial Babylon, I think, uh, comes right in that same time frame. We see the fall of Jerusalem follow that. Um, And this is something that I've taken out of this book, Footsteps of the Messiah, which is a, a great book written by a Messianic Jew, on the end times and uh, also covering the book of Revelation. A great addition to your uh, library. Another little book, a little smaller. Uh, It's a Revelation commentary written by Charles Ryrie. uh, That's uh, something that would be worthy to add to your um, collection. And then here's a book by John Wolverd on the book of Revelation. Okay. Another excellent commentary. And then finally, one of my favorites, one that's called The End by Mark Hitchcock that covers the entire end times drama, written at a lay level so that you can dig into what's uh, predicted, predicted to go on there. Okay? And so these eight stages are outlined and discussed in Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, Footsteps of the Messiah. Okay? And so... Here you have a list of them, and you can uh, um, take a look at uh, ferreting out from Scripture um, 
how he gets these eight stages of the Armageddon campaign. So think campaign, not battle. All right? And then um, in the second coming, let's slow down for a second and take a, a look at that. That's described in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then he's described, and then look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Um, If you look back at verse um, 8, Here's a description of the marriage of the Lamb and his bride. His bride is the church. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The same description that follows that, uh, the, uh, in the description of the armies of heaven. And so, gang, I think that we, as his bride, as his church, will be part of the armies of heaven that will be uh, with him uh, on the second coming. We won't have to lift a finger. We'll just simply have to stay on our horses, okay, and just keep up. Um, But um, our groom, the Lord, will do the fighting, okay? And then you can read uh, what happens to the beasts and the kings of the earth in verse 19 and what happens to the beasts and the false prophet, how they're tossed into the lake of fire. They're the matches that started up, I guess. And uh, then... The rest are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That is the second coming. And you can think about it in uh, five A's. Actually, this is, I'm on the hill of Megiddo, spanning uh, what is the Jezreel Valley. You can see it extends forever and ever. Napoleon called it the uh, greatest battlefield ever. Okay? So I'm up on a a little hill that's uh, called Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. So there you've seen the place where the armies will gather. Um, Let's see. There we go. Um, No, I've gone the wrong way. All right, so five A's on the uh, uh, second coming. His aim, in righteousness he judges and make war. His appearance, his eyes, head, robe, and name are described. His armies we've talked about. His authority, uh, his rule, and uh, the uh, satisfaction of his wrath. And then final, finally, his achievement is total victory. That is the second coming in five A's. All right, so um, chapter 20, we have a lot going on. We have the thousand-year reign of Christ sitting on the throne of David, finally completely fulfilling the Davidic covenant. Uh, He rules from Jerusalem. You can read about that. Um, Then that's interrupted by Satan's, or actually punctuated by Satan's final rebellion. Um, Satan's bound for the thousand-year period. He's finally released, and he comes out. And uh, look at uh, uh, Revelation um, 20. 
thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations, gather them for battle. And look at that. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so the people that Satan will deceive at the end of the millennial kingdom will be numbered like the sand of the sea. That is amazing. Because Jesus has been ruling for a thousand years, but the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of the believers who start the millennial kingdom, I think those will be the tribulation survivors, will start in human bodies. Um, They won't have been translated into resurrection bodies yet, and they will populate and repopulate uh, the millennium, okay? But their uh, offspring, many generations removed, will be ones who know of Jesus, this guy ruling in Jerusalem, but will not have put their trust in him. And as a result, they'll be deceived by Satan. And, you know, it says that they number like the sand of the sea. And that is indeed tragic. And uh, it underscores that... um, Even perfect environment and universal knowledge of Christ will not change the darkness of the human heart. But Satan is defeated finally, and then he is tossed into uh, the lake of fire uh, to accompany the beast and the false prophet who were uh, placed there after the second coming. And then finally we have the great white throne judgment. I think this is only for unbelievers... It will happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. And I summarize it with uh, the judge is Christ. The ones who are judged are the dead, great and small. Okay? I think this is a reference. The ones who are dead are those who have uh, died without ever having trusted in Christ. And so from the Old Testament days and uh, the New Testament days and the church age and the uh, tribulation period, those who have died without Christ will stand before the great white throne judgment. And if you look at the judicial standard, they too will be judged not on the basis of their sins. Sins are never mentioned, but they'll be judged on the basis of their deeds. So what did they do to establish their own righteousness since they have rejected the righteousness of Christ? And gang, let me just say, it will not go well for them. Okay? And then what's the judgment? It's the second death or the lake of fire. Okay? And finally, the tenth point deals with eternity. And the last two chapters of the book talk about the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Okay? And so let's think about those for just a a couple of minutes. And what are things that will mark this? Well, first, God will dwell with his people. How amazing is that? No more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The new things have come. And there we see the third use of it is done. It was first, we were done with uh, uh, sin at the cross. Jesus said it is finished. And then we were done with the judgments, and we see another it is done in Revelation 16 at the end of the bold judgments. And then finally, we are done with the old things of human history Uh, here in Revelation 21, okay? And then we see the new Jerusalem uh, being created and coming down from heaven. And it is amazing. Go read about the new Jerusalem. And so as you read about it, you'll see 
that the New Jerusalem doesn't have five things, and it does have five things. Okay? So it doesn't have a temple. Why? Because God is dwelling in our midst. It doesn't have a sun or moon because the light of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb uh, illuminate the new Jerusalem. No shut gates, no night, no sin or sinners. And the things it does have are the river of the water of life, the tree of life, the throne of God and the Lamb. It has the Lamb and it has a lot of worship. And the New Jerusalem is described as something that is uh, like a cube. And if you think about it, the distances that are mentioned in Revelation um, would go from Dallas to Los Angeles, up to Fargo, North Dakota, to Washington, D.C., and back to Dallas. Think about that as the size of this city. And then take that and extend it up in the heavens 1,500 miles. And so think about, instead of horizontal blocks, think about vertical blocks. And, you know, man, uh, my paradigm gets shaken at that point. I am not able to spatially think about how God does all that. But that's the picture in uh, um, Revelation uh, 21 in the description of the New Jerusalem. Okay? That's going to be fun to see. And as we close, look at the things that were started in Genesis that are brought to um, conclusion in the book of Revelation. Okay, let's just go through these right quick. So we see the heavens and earth created in Genesis and the new heavens and earth created uh, in Revelation. Sun and moon in Genesis, no need of sun and moon in the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Night uh, is established in Genesis, gone in Revelation. Seas, no more. Satan appears to deceive man, he disappears forever. Walk of God with God interrupted, man once again resumes his walk with God. Triumph of the serpent in Genesis, and the ultimate triumph of the lamb in Revelation. Curse announced in Genesis, no more curse in Revelation. Death entering history, no more death. Man's dominion is broken in the fall. Man's dominion is restored in the rule of Christ. Man driven from the tree of life in Genesis 3. Man given the right to the tree of life in in Revelation 22. Sorrow and pain begin. No more sorrow and pain. Man driven from God's presence. Man dwelling, or God dwelling with man. And they will see his face. We will see his face. And I'm sure there are a thousand other things you can see that start in Genesis that are brought to conclusion in the book of Revelation. Okay? And so, quick little review of our points. Okay? Blessing and theme, the vision of Christ, letters to the seven churches, chapter 4, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, Um, 6 is... 6 through 16 is organized around three series of seven judgments, seal, trumpet, and bowl. We've got the seven players. Uh, We've got the destruction of religious and political Babylon, Armageddon campaign, the second coming, then millennium, Satan's final rebellion, and uh, the great white throne judgment, and then finally eternity. And let me close with these questions, okay? These are the so what sort of questions 
that I take away from our study. So the first one is, do you really believe this? You know, even standing up here talking about it, you know, I catch myself going, wow, this is crazy stuff. And so the question for each of us is, do we really believe this? And then are we holding fast to what we learned? Are we going to be like the uh, faithful Philadelphians who held fast? Or are we just satisfying our curiosity? Or will our study of Revelation inspire us to live in accordance with the reality that it unveils? Are we ready to see the Lord? You know, if I were to ask you, what would you do differently if I told you that Jesus is coming back next week? And the right answer to that question is nothing. Exactly right. And if there's anything that we would be doing differently, then we should start doing that stuff today so that we're ready. Because if we're right that the rapture is imminent, that it could happen at any moment, it could happen at any moment. And we need to be ready. We need to be like the wise virgins that were returned, that were ready for the bridegroom's return. Okay? Not like the foolish virgins. See Matthew. Are we ready to see the Lord? Are we faithfully feeding the household of the Lord that's been entrusted to you? Everybody sitting in this room is a leader. First of yourselves, and then you have some sort of influence with someone else. Okay? And so are you faithfully feeding the household of the Lord? And then finally, are you willing to tell others about the hope that's within you and that the train wreck's coming if they have not put their trust in Christ? And so remember, gang, that the book of Revelation is all about two things. It is about giving us hope about what's going to happen in the future. And then it ought to be a great motivation to tell others about Christ and how we can ensure that our eternity is secure with him. That's the so what. Hey, it's been a treat uh, to get to spend these last three weeks with you. And uh, um, I hope that this sprint through the book of Revelation has encouraged you to study it, not discouraged you, because you can understand it. And I hope in these 10 points we've given you a framework to understand where you are in the book as you read through it. Um, If you have questions, there is nothing I like better than talking about the book of Revelation and about what's coming in the end times drama bcroddy at watermark.org. I would love the privilege of answering questions. I'll stick around here tonight until the last question is uh, answered to the best of my abilities. And I hope that you took advantage of getting uh, that little study guide that I uh, put together. It is about, you know, three sentences of my own original work. And the rest of the book is taking the best of these sort of things that I've read and tried to digest as I've sought to understand the book of Revelation. Okay, so let me pray for us and we'll be done.
Lord, help us live in a way that demonstrates that we do believe this, that we are holding fast to what you teach us in the book of Revelation, that we do want to live in accordance with the reality that it unveils. Help us be ready to see your son when he returns. And help us uh, um, faithfully feed those entrusted to our care to tell them about uh, the gospel of your son, to tell them about how um, our sins produce death, but he has made possible the free gift of eternal life simply by putting our trust in him. And so, Lord, may this motivate us to tell others, and may it give us great hope that your son is indeed coming back. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.